You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Friday, everybody. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain with you for a solo Spain couple hours. I believe if I heard correctly, Fitz was cheating on me with another loose slot again. It's hard to keep track of where he is these days, but I know he's not here. So you get two hours of solo Spain. We got lots of guests lined up for tonight. Uh, and lots of news today. I was doing around the horn earlier today, and I don't think we've changed the rundown of topics that many times in the hours leading up to a show um, as as we did today, as things just continued to hit. And we're going to start there. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. COVID is back, everybody. It never really went away, but it got better. And unfortunately, this new Delta variant is uh, resulting in numbers being up in every state in the country right now for the first time in a long time, and we're feeling it interrupt sports in a way we haven't seen in a while. It started, of course, with baseball. There have been COVID-19-related postponements this season, but this one with the Yankees was the first in nearly three months. We've seen a boatload of people getting vaccinated. We've seen a majority of teams in baseball be able to reach that threshold, including the Yankees, but the the existence of unvaccinated folks is going to allow for continued spread. And I have to say, if I'm a Yankees player who is vaccinated the fact that this is the second time this season that there has been a rash of infections around my team despite exceeding that vaccination threshold i'd be pretty frustrated and i i'm interested in the conversations going on in that locker room and in other locker rooms because by all accounts experts think it is very unlikely for a vaccinated person who catches covid to be able to pass it on to spread it so that means if the players who are vaccinated are being smart and not surrounding themselves with 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 people who are unvaccinated outside of their teams, they have some finger pointing to do to those who have elected not to be vaccinated and affecting the availability of everybody. And Buster only was on Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin this morning, our ESPN NBA, uh, MLB insider, talking about how this is not just a Yankees issue. This is definitely going to start a lot of conversations around baseball. Now, I will tell you that this situation ramped up, I I think, attention on this around baseball. For example, Alex Cora, when the Red Sox held their team meeting yesterday, told his players, look, we've accomplished so much this year. We need to be diligent as we go forward. We need to be careful. You know, there was a sense within the Red Sox clubhouse earlier this year that they had done a really good job with this. They want to continue that. I would expect that that type of conversation is going to go on around clubhouses all around baseball today to have this uh, after seeing what you know this rash of uh, sick at least six cases with the Yankees yeah the conversations are going to happen the game got postponed last night it is on for tonight Yankees Red Sox all six of the Yankees cases have been confirmed they're all on the COVID-19 injured list Aaron Boone said he expects the players who have tested positive to probably miss at least 10 days there are some symptoms but nothing too severe we also know that Aaron Judge was at the all-star game So Judge being in Denver, participating with a bunch of players who then all scattered across the country to play games today, leaves a lot of teams making sure that they're testing. And with the potential for uh, COVID to be in that incubating period for a little bit, there is certainly still a risk for this to spread beyond just this Yankees uh, dugout. And so conversations in baseball going to continue and you know, you hear it in sports all the time. It's a cliche, but it's true. The best ability is availability. If we start to see the increased spread of COVID across the country affecting more and more players' ability to compete, will that change their view of vaccinations? 
it's tough to say because some of them are, are so dug in. But uh, baseball certainly not wanting to start the second half of the season this week. And the Yankees certainly not wanting to start the second half of the season this way. They're in fourth place right now. They're not too far out of the wild card, but they're eight games back of Boston. Red Sox swept both of the three-game series against the Yankees earlier in the season. And they're supposed to play eight games over the next week and a half. And now the Yankees are without a bunch of players for those games. So are they buyers? Are they sellers? Right now they're buyers. But if this is a terrible start to this second half, that could change everything for them this season. It's Spain and Fit Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Right after we hear about the Yankees, we hear about Beal, Bradley Beal, out for the Olympics in the team's health and safety protocols. Jeremy Grant also in protocol because of contract tracing, but as long as he doesn't test positive, he'll be able to actually continue to play with USA. Uh, but because their roster is so thin, they're still waiting for some of the players from the finals. They canceled their Australia exhibition game. They called up uh, JaVale McGee and Keldon Johnson because Kevin Love withdrawing from from playing, and, and he hasn't been able to, to add much to this roster and still returning from injury. So JaVale McGee trying to follow in his mama's footsteps. She won a gold medal in 84. And then Keldon Johnson, who's been um, playing with the team as a part of USA Select and has been, you know, obviously knows Coach Pop well, seems like a good choice, has been a staff favorite to, to try to step in and, and help out that team. But when I mean, you heard it in Pop's voice, Greg Popovich talking about how much it hurts to have a guy like Beal who was so excited to get out to, to Tokyo not be able to play. Dying for him. Uh, we all are. You know, since he's a little kid, this has been a dream of his. He was playing great. He was having fun, being a big part of us coming together chemistry-wise and as a family. And so for him and for his family, immediate family, uh, it's devastating. Yeah, it, it's devastating, and it's really frustrating at this point for this still to be an issue. We should be so grateful and thankful that vaccinations are helping a lot of us return to everyday life, but the numbers are going up. And the big fear is that, you know, if not enough people get vaccinated, the virus continues to spread and it mutates among the unvaccinated. That affects unvaccinated folks with the usual result that we've seen for the last year plus. High risk of death, long hauler symptoms, hospitalizations, taxing our hospital systems. And then vaccinated people can still catch it minimal symptoms thus far for the most part. But if not enough people are vaccinated, the spread keeps happening. We get a reversal of all the progress we've made. And then you end up back where we don't have sporting events anymore or, or it's masks only or it's vaccinated only and, and you need proof. And all of this is happening because a lot of people don't understand the science. and They think, well, if you're vaccinated, we're good, right? No, we're not good. Because if the vax numbers are super low, there's a risk for another major wave like last year, countless deaths, more folks dealing with the long hauler symptoms and limited travel, economic strain, all of that. We can't get back to that. And and that's the problem with seeing this start to rise in sports again. We're not through it, folks. Uh, and meanwhile, while we're you know trying to pay attention to what USA men's hoops is going to look like with these guys dropping out or not being able to play, we also have the drama of Damian Lillard going to sit down to talk USA basketball and getting mostly questions about the Blazers instead, as there's a lot of rumors of him requesting a trade he said flat out it's not true. He said he did anticipate he would be in a Blazers uniform, but he also said this, which was a very pointed message to them about what needs to be done if they want to hang on to him. Uh, I think the, the best way to put it is just to be more urgent. Uh, be more urgent about what, what our next step is and how we move forward. Uh, you know, I think we uh, we take, we have a lot of uh, pride about, you know, we've made the playoffs all these years in a row. You know, we're not a bad team. We're we're a winning team. You know, we, we're in the playoffs every year. We've got a great environment. We, we're in a great city. 
You know, we have great fans. It's a lot of positives, you know, but I just think we've, we've reached that point where it's like, okay, but it's not enough. Do we actually want to win it all? Do you know, is that what we're shooting for? Um, and we got to do things to, to show that, you know, we got to, you know, put action behind that, that desire that to win at that level. And, you know, that's, that's been my only um, thing this entire time. Just about that action boss, right? We got to see some reason to believe that things are going to change. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and they will be lucky to hang on to him by making some moves and figuring out ways to get real competitive because Damian Lillard is not a guy who's going to be happy sticking around on that team for a whole lot longer if they aren't winning. But I believe him when he says he wants to stick around. Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. It's Spain and Fitz represented by Progressive Insurance. Brian Windhorst going to join me to talk about everything going on right now with USA Hoops and tomorrow's next game of this NBA Finals. It's coming up. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Oh, Spain tonight with you on a Friday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80 at Spain and Fitz. Guests join us tonight on the Goodyear Hotline. And, you know, Wendy, this is uh, Brian Windhorse, by the way, joining me now. I just uh, jumped right in because I have so much to talk to him about. Wendy, this was a big day for Team USA basketball. Already, you know, the focus of a lot of attention because of the uh, losses in, in the in the warm-up games. Now they lose Bradley Beal. You know, now they have to add two guys in, in, in Jeremy Grant and, well, I mean, JaVale McGee, uh, who is – Got a lot of jokes about him, but is a three-time champion and probably going to bring some stability to them. What do you make of everything that's happened in the last 24 hours? Well, obviously, it's been a little turbulent for them, and they had six guys at practice today. Oof. But let me just say that they're still loaded, okay? And um, today, Chris Middleton and Devin Booker reaffirmed that they're coming to Japan once the finals are over. I, I didn't... I don't know if Drew Holiday uh, – I'm in Vegas, so I wasn't in Phoenix, but I, don't, I assume Drew Holiday feels the same way. I don't know. But they're going to get those reinforcements. And, you know, they go with JaVale McGee, who has a experience with Kevin Durant, and that's – Durant's comfort level is arguably the most important thing on the team, and he can defend. And I agree he's not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but um, <laughs> he is in, apparently in shape because that's what the – it's what Greg Popovich said he had to have. And – to be honest with you, people can make fun of Kevin Love. Um, I think he did TMUSA a service by bowing out. Yeah. Because if you watched him play at all, and I understand if you did, and there's a lot of other stuff going on, he just didn't look right. He didn't look like, frankly, he could help the team. Now, maybe he would have. Maybe he'd have gone there, and in the fourth game, he would hit three threes in the second half or something. But I don't think he was going to help them. And Kevin looked at the situation and said, we've only got six or seven guys here. You can't afford to have a roster spot being used on a guy that you can't rely on. I took a step back and you may not be excited about Keldon Johnson, unless you're a Spurs fan. He's one of their better young players, but Keldon Johnson will help team USA more than Kevin Love would, in my opinion. And so yeah, Kevin, I think, ahead, yeah, I think Kevin Love, I think Kevin Love bowing out helps team USA get better. So they got to pass some COVID tests before they go to Japan, but uh, do not have a pity party for them. They are not desperate. They are challenged, <laughs> but they are not desperate. Kevin Love had played in two of the three exhibition games, scoring one point. And what we saw across a couple of those exhibition games was that this team was going to struggle in terms of defense and size, more so than scoring or guard play. And I, I heard you say up to the point 
where uh, before they had announced the replacements that they would probably be looking for a big man. They probably wouldn't be looking to try to just replace Beal with another score. Do you think that's why Trey Young hasn't gotten the nod? Yeah, I mean, I can understand why Trey Young is frustrated and why Trey Young fans are like, why? Um, but the Trey Young role, the role he would play is being played by Dame Lillard, who is in better position at this time in his career to play that role. And here comes Drew Holiday, who is uh, going to be great defensively and a great counterbalance. They're perimeter players. I mean, Zach Levine, I know Zach Levine and Trey Young don't play the same position, but they're perimeter players with Booker and Levine. Like, they are very strong on the, on the wing, and they have Holiday and, and Lillard. And so when you've got those kind of players, and, and Levine looks, Sarah, Levine looks great. Yeah. And I'm not surprised he looks great because he's played the least basketball of all these guys. The Bulls weren't in the bubble, and they weren't in the playoffs. He is the freshest-looking guy. He is in great shape. He looks fantastic. There's no reason to limit him. I, you know, he is not Bradley Beal, I agree, but putting Zach Levine into Bradley Beal's role, I am comfortable with that if I'm Greg Popovich. That's how good he looks. And so it didn't make sense to plug Trey in. I realized from a, from a talent man-to-man standpoint, you could say, well, he's better than Keldon Johnson. I agree, but Keldon Johnson has been here, and they need him at that spot more than they need Trey Young. Well, and a lot of it, Wendy, they've talked about over and over again is being in shape, which I think for a lot of people is kind of surprising. It's like, well, if they got a couple weeks off, aren't they rested and good? But it feels like Pop was really harping on that, even about the guys that have been in camp playing in these exhibitions. Why is it that their wind or their ability can can so quickly be uh, compromised? Because they're, this this entire rotation is off. Normally, the NBA season ends in April. And you would come back to Team USA in early July. And so, you know, that's if you don't make the playoffs. And if you do make the playoffs, maybe you've had less time. Uh, these, a lot of these guys' seasons ended in May or even June. Um, and they definitely needed to do some rest. I mean, how could you not tell Kevin Durant he needed to rest? The guy was playing like, you know, 54 minutes a game in that Buck series. What are you going to say? Keep, keep playing every single day? Um, same for Dame Willard. I mean, the guy was – you know, just killing himself against Denver. Are you saying that you know, he's supposed to continue to, to work out? No, they had to take some time off. And Pop, Pop was even saying, like, I understand they're not in shape, but, but you know, this is, this is the hand that we're dealt. So, um, again, they have challenges, but they are, they are not, you know, unrecoverable challenges. And so that's where they are. And, by the way, like, I think that they looked better in the last game and in talking to the players, Today we talked to Dave Willard and Zach Levine, and both of them said they feel like the team is playing better, and they were all there, and they had a good practice. And so I, I think the guys were still here moving in the right direction. <laughs> the arrow's pointing up for the sad USA men's basketball squad that we should all be deeply concerned about. Uh, Brian Windhorst with us here giving you the Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Let's switch gears to the finals. You know, it feels like the only consistent thing in this series has been inconsistency and maybe Giannis being great. Even that first game that wasn't that good, it was still pretty good. These sides are separated by three points across four games, and yet somehow despite that, and I know it might be prisoner of the moment and we've seen Milwaukee at home twice now, it feels like the adjustments, surprisingly made by them, are the difference here. They're shutting down Chris Paul. They're forcing turnovers. They're shutting down the drive and kick. They're doing better on the pick and roll. They're out-rebounding, pushing in transition, turning it over less. All of those things are going the way of the Bucks. Does that just flip again when they get home to Phoenix for the Suns? It, it could. We've seen this happen over the decades in the NBA that um, just when you think you, you've got a series figured out, it turns on its head. 
Um, Tex Winter, the longtime legendary coach who coached with Phil Jackson, used to say everything turns on a trifle, and he's and he's <laughs> right. It's, it's amazing how fragile these series are. Um, I will say that the formula that Milwaukee has, which is to frankly harass Chris Paul, they just absolutely harass him with Drew Holiday up and down the court, full court pressure. Um, you know, they really bump him. They really are try to make him uncomfortable. And I do believe it's working. Chris Paul's effectiveness each game in the series has reduced a little bit. And even Jeff Teague, you'd say, well, Jeff Teague is not really that effective of a player at this point in his career. True. But Jeff Teague will pick up Chris Paul full court mm-hmm. for the six or seven minutes he's in the game. And those eight to ten possessions, you know, Holiday can rest while Teague does the work. And it's worked a little bit on Chris Paul. And the one thing that's happened in these last few games is they've made Booker the primary focus of the offense. Now, Booker was awesome in game three. I'm sorry, game four. And you're going to take that risk if you're Milwaukee. But you are willing to let Devin Booker be the primary playmaker because the primary playmaker, Devin Booker, was a lottery team for, for you know, last four or five years. Yeah. The Devin Booker-Chris Paul pairing, the one-two punch, that's potentially a championship team. They have made them more of a singular offensive team. So the so while there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, have to happen, you know, Bridges has to get – Mikhail Bridges has to get back involved. DeAndre Ayton has to, you know, impose his will defensively more. They need the Chris Paul-Booker one-two punch that they just absolutely slaughtered the Clippers with. And early in this series uh, were terrific at the two games of Phoenix. You're so right. And, and Chris Paul opens the door up for Aiton. And when you see that Chris Paul isn't running the offense and isn't moving through him the same way, that's when Aiton becomes less of a factor. And then it's about Booker. And you'll give Booker his. And you'll be okay with that if nobody else can get uh, the effective uh, offense running that they did in the first couple games. Uh, looking forward to the game tomorrow. And uh, hopefully it'll be a good enough game to put behind us. Booker having like 11 fouls in that game and everything else we went through down the stretch <laughs> of game four. Wendy, thanks so much for the time. Take care. Ryan Windhorst with us here on Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. The NBA Finals are all on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night, Game 5, as the Suns host the Bucks, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN Radio stations. Coming up next, WNBA All-Star Game was off the hook, but Team USA took an L today. Ari Chambers is going to come talk about it all next here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. You thought Team USA women's hoops hadn't lost in like a thousand something days had a little fluke against the WNBA all-stars in the all-star game the other night you might be surprised to learn that they blew a double-digit lead and lost to Australia in a little friendly before the Olympics too today lots to get into at the WNBA and Team USA it's Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio the ESPN app Sirius XM channel 80 Sarah Spain with you solo Spain tonight but lots of guests and joining me now from Bleacher Report Ari Chambers Ari thanks for the time Sarah, you brought me in with Ja Rule. It's a good day. <laughs> it's always good. Can you believe that Ja Rule is like nominated for a Grammy and the extent of his talent is like, baby. <laughs> just like There will be no Ja Rule slander okay. on this show I mean, today. It's I not understand. really about the slander so much as like, listen, the guy did a lot with what he's got is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the All-Star game. It was fun as hell. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly competitive. Arike was like, let me show y'all what you forgot to put on the roster. Mm-hmm. And USA Women's Hoops in, is is one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant team in the history of any sport in the Olympics. Are we worried at all that they dropped the win to team and WNBA and then lost to Australia today? 
You know what's funny is like, I just saw the press release and it says there's no panic, just determination to improve. So what Team USA, um, just watching them go at it, it's clear that they need to work on their chemistry. And you got to keep in mind, right before the WNBA All-Star game, they only had one practice. So right. Sue Bird is right. What people do in months and years um, to come together, USA had to do in one day. And you see that. But I think as they continue to build and, and learn each other and, and grow, there's a lot of first-time Olympians are on the roster, and you have other countries that have been playing together for so long. USA just has to catch up at this point. All right, we also hear a lot of athletes, for instance, NECA, Cheney, Elizabeth Williams, uh, wanting to apply to go play in other countries. Their determination to play in the Olympics mm-hmm. goes to the point of, you know, applications and filing appeals. Like, they're dead set on getting mm-hmm. out there. And then you hear from someone like Liz Cambage. Now, there's a lot more to the story than just her withdrawing because of mental health. We know there were the concerns about potentially partying in Vegas, which she denies uh, the issue of the altercation in the game against Nigeria. But she did bring up some things that you have to wonder if any other players are worried about. Not having friends and family and fans, not having a support mm-hmm. system, being in a place that has, I think, a 15% vaccination rate. Are you mm-hmm. hearing from any of the WNBA players, the Team USA players, about concerns about the Olympics? Or is it mostly just positivity heading into Tokyo? I think that there's hope and in, in, in excitement to know that all your hard work is paying off. There is a lot of concern with um, knowing that there's a growing spike again with COVID in their vaccination rate. And, and again, the loneliness, Liz, Liz talked about it in her story today, how she was been in a room with no view and that does take a toll on your mental health. It does. And the fact that there are no spectators here. And then we saw what team Canada was pressing for uh, with the new mothers and making sure that their children are being kept. It's, there's a lot of things. And I think the weight of the world is really, really heavy right now, but I like to look at the Olympics as, I mean, obviously, I'm not an Olympian, but I like to look at it as something that's the culmination of everybody's hard work. So I see newcomers like Chelsea Gray, Ariel Atkins, Skylar Diggins-Smith, who all have worked so hard in their own way, uh, in their own right, to make it to this Olympic team. So I really, really hope that they can they can really be proud of themselves as as they go on with it. And I think that the push for playing on these international teams, yeah, outside of, you know, USA being so difficult to make the roster because it's so stacked full with talent and they're going for seven consecutive gold medals. It's it's that pride that you can play. So if that appeal works out, I hope it does in their favor, mm-hmm. they'd be returning to like, you know, their culture, their, their history. And I, and I love that they can represent, um, you know, their heritage. And it's good for the game. It's good for the game. Uh, Ari Chambers of Bleach Report is with us here on Spain and Fifth Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. You know, one of the things we often hear from the superstars, the favorites, someone like Serena Williams is, it's not news when I win again. It's always news if I lose. It's always a massive disappointment. I can't imagine the pressure of heading to the Olympics. It's a lot of fun if you're essentially the dream Mm -hmm. team, which the U.S. women's team is. But it also feels like that's a lot to burden that – People won't really be that impressed or even give you the flowers that you deserve if you win it all. Because we know this U.S. women's hoops team does not get the love of, say, like the soccer team or something like that when they win. Mm-hmm. But it's a massive disappointment if they lose. Mm-hmm. They have the history going for if if they win, this will be the most, I think, successful um, run ever. But then you have Australia right on their coattails. I know that it's kind of sensitive because they just had that loss today and everybody's saying don't worry. But Australia has 
five WNBA players on their roster. And they were already talented. So I'm, like, really, really interested. I think that it's going to be a lot spicier this year because they are the target. When you're, when you're dominant like that, you are the target. And, and there's more parity in the game than it has been before, at least from what I've seen. And the fact that it's spread out, um, WNBA talent is spread out to international teams now, I'm like, Let's let's see what's gonna happen. Let's let's make it a little spicy. Let's let's see if those appeals work for Nigeria because Nigeria is their front court will be dangerous, you know, if that works. So it's just I can't wait to see how the teams rise to the occasion and, and make it more close than we've seen in the past. Ari Chambers is with me here on Spain and Fitz. Let's talk WNBA. We saw that incredible All-Star game, which means they're at the Olympic break. Unlike some other sports like the NWSL, they won't be playing through. They all get a nice big break if they're not on Team USA, and then things return in earnest after Tokyo. You look at the the, the standings, and it's wild. I mean, there is a ton of teams mm-hmm. hovering around 500 that are a couple wins from being in the playoffs. There are teams like... You know, the Mystics that hope to get Elena Deladon back that will be a totally different team. Teams like the Sky that struggled with Candace Parker out, and as soon as she returned, their lights out. Um, when you look at this kind of landscape, are there teams that stand out to you that you say, okay, this record is nothing like what we're going to see in the second half? I think that you nailed it, the Mystics. If they can get Elena back and they can really work through Tina and Elena, that's just another weapon. And we can't discount the fact that Natasha Howard is still missing from the New York Liberty. I know they got off to a fiery start and every, everything looked promising, but now the standings are so close. But I think the addition of Natasha Howard coming back and then Beck after she um, comes back from Team Australia because, you know, she sat out the last two games, I think that they're a weapon too. I'm actually really, really interested in seeing if Dallas can rally back up because I'm, I'm looking at the standings right now, and it's, it's so close, and it's anybody's game for um, that, that six, seven, eight spot. And so I really want to see if Dallas can turn it around because they have so much talent. And I don't think their record reflects that. I think that there needs to be some type of um, – uh, I'm not, not going to go for the coaching, but just figuring out their <laughs> roster and how to best utilize their talent. <laughs> you said it without saying it, kind of saying it. Uh, what about the Mercury? Obviously, Diana Taurasi's been out a while, Bria Hartley. So do you see that as a team that changes a lot if, if Diana can come back healthy after the Olympics? I want to see a healthy Diana because a healthy mm-hmm. Diana can carry this team to the playoffs. And we see, we know how playoff DT is. And I just hope that her body will allow her um, to really perform at the level we know she can and, and to show that competitive side. Because when DT wants to win, she, she, and if she plays, she's going to win. <laughs> Ari Chambers is with us here on Spain and Fitz Solo Spain on ESPN Radio. You can find her work on Bleacher Report. You can also follow Highlight Her on Instagram, which is a fantastic follow Always bringing the good mm-hmm. stuff. Um, quickly, you look at this standings. You know, this is a league that needs expansion. Full stop. Mm-hmm. There are way too many talented mm-hmm. players. You look at some of the players that literally got cut from another team and are thriving mm-hmm. and excelling elsewhere, and you wonder if they hadn't gotten that opportunity to get picked up, we wouldn't be seeing their greatness. You look at this and you say, of the teams right now, the Mystics are the last to make the cut. Um, but obviously a lot can change. If people come back healthy, the people you mentioned, the teams that you mentioned, who are your two favorites with all things being considered with the, with everyone healthy? Who, who I would say you can never discount the storm in the aces. I, I really, really want Connecticut to be able to push past, you know, what they, that last minute hump that they always seem to have. But I, I think it's a storm and aces situation. Yeah, the storm. I mean, if you have Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and Jewel Lloyd, I mean, that's that's I mean, all you need, right? But then, then they have more. But like, if you have that, 
And then I, before I let you go, you know, Liz Cambage, we know this is taking her out of the Olympics and the issues that she has mm-hmm. in terms of behavioral and everything else are specific to that Opal's uh, Australian team. But do you think this affects her ability to, to compete for the Aces and the remainder of this season? Not knowing the full story, um, I can't really, I don't really know. But if, if she is out, I I know that Asia Wilson has the capacity to step up. And that's what I'm like, I'm excited to see how Asia can, you know, regain the leadership role. I mean, she's never lost it, but just stay being a leader and the, the veteran leadership on that team in general can help them stay sound, um, yeah. whether or not Liz plays. But I wish everybody the best in that situation. Awesome stuff, Ari. Everybody follow her at Ari Ivory, which I sometimes think is her name, but it's Chambers. But call her whatever you want as long as you follow her and follow women's sports because the WNBA is so important. Thank you, Ari. It's so important. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Ari Chambers with me here on Spain and Fitz. Coming up, we're going to do a little nod to the pod. That's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Here's Spain with you. Solo Spain tonight. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. The ESPN app, the ESPN, uh, sorry, Sirius XM channel 80. Fitz is out. He was hanging uh, with the earlier slot today. He's always cheating me with uh, with other slots. I got to get to the bottom of that. Don't forget to tune in to my podcast where I cheat on him. That's what she said. It's hosted by me. It's fueled by Gatorade. We appreciate their continued support of women's sports journalists and athletes here at ESPN and everywhere. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. I love me some Gatorade. That is a great company who is incredibly supportive of all things ESPNW and women's sports. So shout out to them. Um, my podcast this week is actually about women's sports. I don't know if you guys heard about this, but there is a new research document called The Fan Project. It was many years in the making from the Sport Innovation Lab. They pulled and researched uh Tons of social media activity, viewing habits and practices of fans of women's sports and other sports to try to take a kind of snapshot and idea of what fandom looks like right now. And Angela Ruggiero, who is a four-time Olympian, gold medalist in hockey when she was still in high school, went on The Apprentice, got a job offer from the Trumps that she turned down and looks back on now fondly on making that decision, started the Sports Innovation Lab where she's the CEO did this project, and people are going crazy over the data results, especially because of the way that it helps predict the future for every sport. And we, we see this a lot in the WNBA and the NBA, right? The NBA uses the WNBA as sort of an incubator. We want to try things out here on this level, and if we like it, we maybe bring it over to the NBA side. Well, that's what's happening sort of unintentionally when you study women's sports fans because the accessibility to that sport that they love and the players that they like requires more work. And in doing so, they're helping break open the new models of fandom in a changing media landscape where you can't just go watch everything you want on you know ABC, NBC, CBS like you used to decades ago. There's streaming, there's Twitch, there's you know um, a la carte things that you have to subscribe to. So this is a little bit of the conversation I had with her and how it opens up the door to how women's sports can get you a ton of money and also the reality is that a lot of men's leagues are going to have to learn sooner rather than later. Here's Nod to the Pod. Here's this week's Nod to the Pod. So you've got this broad base of people literally canning us their data for free or for a free T-shirt because they want more women's sports. And we said, that's great. So we've got 10 million data points from these fans. We got 10 billion data points from um, viewership. We, we worked with a host of other partners like CrowdTangle and Zoomf and others. And we put all this data together and our amazing you know, data scientist, Katie Donovan, 
uh, Molly Tissenbaum, my co-founder, Josh Walker, the team, um, looked at what that data said. And it said they are the future consumer. They're the, the early adopters, the highest concentration of these digitally savvy fluid fans, as we call them, is in women's sports. And that's like a big finding because it's what, what it's saying is that you're, you know, total percent, 10% of your fan base typically generates 50% of your total revenue. You got to know what those 10% are, what they're doing, these early adopters. And they live in women's sports today. You got to look at them today. So even if you don't even care about women's sports, you should know what women's sports fans look like and how they're behaving because that's where your future consumer is headed anyway. So I'll just start there. It's like, you can't ignore us because we are the future. Because it's hard to be a women's sports fan, they are the actually the most digitally savvy, um, kind of futuristic fan. You've you've winnowed the crowd in some ways because now you have to go find your audience on Twitch or your Reddit community, or you got to like download all these different platforms and all these different ways to like find your content or your athletes that you care about. And so, just like their behaviors are very different, and it's really cool to see. That's what we you know measured in this report. And we're like, whoa, they they they're co-watching they're they they want to learn more about the athlete they want more context like there's certain elements of what these fans are doing this is like in the future where all fans will be doing technology is really democratizing access to it's giving at these female athletes like Mm -hmm. ability to build their brands and connect to consumers directly don't have to go through traditional media and so you get these these breakout female athletes and male athletes too but increasingly women that these fans love, and we saw that in our data, that they, you know, they wanted more of just the athlete. And so if you build your model in a different way, which is, look, if you're a men's sports league, you can't really change your model holistically. You can kind of build around the edges. If you're a women's sports league, you can blow it up. You're all, you're like the startup. You don't have, you can do things very different mm-hmm. and, and say, we're going to put all of our content around the athlete as an example, or we're going to build 90% shoulder content and like 10% about the game. And like, again, thinking outside of the box is what we, you know, and being prescriptive in what we think you should do through this community-based monetization model is what, you know, the fan project was all about. Like, let us look at the fans and, and, and build a new way based on where fans are headed and what they want. And, and it's, and, and that's exciting to me because again, I think you can leapfrog in a lot of ways the historical bias that's existed in the system because everyone's trying to figure out technology. Everyone's wrapping their head around these societal trends and everyone's going, Oh my God, the athlete is like increasingly having the power over the teams and the leagues. And how do we, how do we work together with that? And I think women's sports can lean into those three kind of macro trends that we've identified and say, let's build something better. For more, please subscribe and listen to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain on your smart speaker or wherever you listen to podcasts. She's awesome. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. Like I said, incredible four-time Olympian who's the CEO of this company. But one of the fascinating things when you dive deep into the research is not only, again, that you don't have to have an interest in women's sports. You don't even have to care that you are leaving money on the table every time you fail to invest or create around women's sports, but you do have to understand that they're able to predict now the behaviors of fans of all sports, because that's what it's going to look like as we continue to break apart the big picture of being able to just get your team 
and your league anytime you want on streaming tele- on on linear television. You're going to have to learn how to find them on Twitch and streaming and various platforms. You're going to want to, too. You already look at some of the ways that you can digest sports. You can watch on Twitch while there's, you know, gambling propositions held up. Who's going to score on this next play or uh, what's this drive going to end in? And that interaction is really key to the next generation of sports fans who are just different. They're not necessarily just sitting on their couch going to watch on TV. They want to be interactive. They want to chat with each other during the game. They want to interact with the athletes. And this fan project actually says that there's potential for the money in sponsorships of athletes and leagues being bigger than that of the TV rights buys, which seems unbelievable right now. But look at the difference in the marketplace over just the last decade or so. Spain and Fit, Solo Spain. Uh, Listen to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Check out the pod with Angela Ruggiero. One of the things I love is when you bring out hard facts and data points over the course of years of research, you cut down on the people who want to come in with just opinion. And so much of what has held back women's sports and female athletes has been opinion. And a lot of it's been lies. You look at some of what's been unearthed recently. For instance, the NCAA arguing that things like the women's basketball tournament lose money. When you find out there's 4 million viewers and there's advertising plastered everywhere on that, and it turns out that's because they gave a raw deal giving CBS all of the rights to the advertising uh, money from all of the championships in NCAA as part of their men's basketball deal, and those sponsors then don't have to appeal to specific fan bases for any of the other sports, don't have to dedicate any research or interest in what kind of sponsorships are a fit for those other championships, whether that be men's lacrosse, women's basketball, whatever. There are a lot of lies that have been peddled for decades about how the product is the problem, when in fact it has been undercut at every turn. It has been underestimated, and it hasn't been invested in like a startup, which is how it should be. And if you do that, as Angela said, there's a bleep ton of money in women's sports, and finally people are starting to figure that out, and the people who are ahead on that are going to make out big leaving everybody else behind. Go listen to the podcast. Go read the fan project. It's really interesting stuff. Coming up on Spain and Fitz here on ESPN Radio, Mirren Fader, the author of a new book about Giannis, joins to talk all about it. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain on a Friday here on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. It's just not the same when I do it by myself. I don't have the same energy for it. I like to do it really loud and hold the note really long, and I like to hear Fitz try to do it and have his voice crack like a... We young lad. He's not around. Solo Spain tonight. We're presented by Progressive. Get in the Zones brought to you by AutoZone. Get in the Zone, AutoZone. So happy to be joined now on the Goodyear Hotline by Mirren Fader, who is a writer for The Ringer and also now the author of a book. Let's just like take a moment, Mirren, and talk about how incredible (laughs) that is. I'm so daunted by the idea of sitting down and writing like a long form story. So a whole damn book, girl, like that's really impressive. Oh, my God. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me. I know the first time I sat down, I was like, oh, so I have to actually do the book now. <laughs> How does one go about that? Right. You're like, the um, research so, yeah, in Greece what... is great, but the uh, right. but the actual writing. <laughs> You're like um, 120,000 words. Hmm, mm. That sounds easy. Yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, the book is Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. It comes out on August 10th. It's from Hatchet Books. You can pre-order now. Uh, go to a bookstore near you, maybe. You can get it other places, but you should support a local bookstore. Why not? Um, before we get into how uh, the book might be revised, depending on what happens in the coming weeks, let's talk about some of what's in it now. Um, you get into a lot about his, his, his growing up, life as an undocumented immigrant, and we've heard so many stories about him, you know, trading shoes, the one pair that they had with his brother, depending on who was on the court and selling trinkets on the street. What was the most surprising thing you learned about that life growing up in Greece that maybe hasn't been talked about as much? I think the racism hasn't been talked about as much. You know, when he would travel to away games, people would shout horrible things from the stands. You know, one game at this place called Tricola, you know, from the stands, they'd say, go home, monkey. Um, and I think because Giannis has ascended and morphed into an MVP, his story is kind of framed as this feel-good story because it is feel-good. It is inspiring. But there were also so many people that did not wish him well. The other thing I think that I found that people don't really know is that he had a lot of joy in his childhood. You know, people talk about the struggle, the selling trinkets, the difficulties. But when that's your normal life, you don't think of it as bad at first. You know, it's just he that was the situation. And here was his brothers and they had fun and joy and laughter together. I love to hear that because it is true. We kind of do this like inspiration porn where we take someone's tragic story and we try to buff it up into a fairy tale without either acknowledging the real realities of the everyday trauma or acknowledging that it wasn't that everyday, that there was so much more to it. Um, and I do think we manifest that into mostly making it about Giannis's drive. Did that part seem true to you? The idea that many people say that what's most important to him is really just family and basketball. It is true, but I think it's it's important to note that it wasn't like that at first, at least on the basketball side. He hated basketball at first when he picked up the ball <laughs> at age 13. This was not like kid falls in love, you know, the romanticization of his story. He didn't want to go, and he was busy leaving for two weeks at a time, three weeks at a time with his family to sell items. He didn't even really start regularly playing, I mean, every day until age 16. But um, the family was always there, you know, and even though Giannis wasn't the oldest, he was still somebody that his younger brothers looked up to. Wherever he said they were going, they were going. So I think that, you know, basketball, it became something that he grew to love and it motivated him because he realized, you know, maybe he could do something with it. But, you know, it really wasn't until he grew a little bit older did he realize that that was an actual possibility. Mirren Fader, writer for The Ringer and the author of the new book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP, with us here on Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight here on ESPN Radio. You know, I was uh, in Greece a couple years ago, and as my flight was taking off, I think, from Santorini to Athens, who popped up on the screen? Maybe it was the, the flight from Athens. Either way, Giannis Antetokounmpo pops up on my screen doing a welcome message and I think, you know, letting us know to buckle our seatbelts and everything else. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so I would imagine that uh, while there is still certain, I'm sure, um, bad treatment from fans out there, at this point he's bringing a great deal of pride and acclaim to that area as a superstar NBA player. Does it feel like he feels received differently now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of both. I mean, I talk to a lot of um, black migrants who are growing up in Athens now, and they talk to me about what it means to see somebody who looks like them ascend the way that Giannis has. He gives people hope. He gives people um, happiness, you know. Uh, Sure, there have been other Greek players that had a chance at the NBA, but none with the kind of impact that Giannis has had. Um, And so they look up to him. They want to live the life that he's living I know it means the same thing to Giannis. I mean, his younger brother, Alex, uh, when I visited their home, um, I was in their basement and Alex showed me a picture of like a magazine cover that they have every time you go on a plane. And the way Alex was talking about that, such pride, you know, look at us where people see this on the plane. Um, It never gets old for them. So I I think the pride is there on both sides, you know, which is really refreshing, really cool. Mirren, there's so much to like about Giannis beyond the physical gifts and the freak of nature ability to get from, say, I don't know, the top of the key to blocking a shot at the at the rim in one step. Uh, there's also who he is, talking about tinkling in the postgame presser and asking if that's <laughs> the polite way to say he needed to, you know, take a whiz mid-game. Is, did you get to spend a lot of time with him for this book, and is that who he is all the time? He that is who he is all the time. I mean, unfortunately, I didn't get to spend as much time as I would have liked because of COVID. But from the time that I did spend around him and the family, it's absolutely him. I mean, he almost like the way I describe it is he doesn't believe in his hype. He absolutely knows his (laughs) worth. He knows how good he could be, but he doesn't drink his own Kool-Aid. Um, for him, it's always on to the next, on to the next. But that, that sense of humor, you know, it's been there since since the early days in Milwaukee. And that's why I think people fell in love with him. Because, you know, there are scenes in the book where, you know, they have to run, the Bucks have to run if, if Giannis misses the shot. And he airballs, but he starts cracking up. And then everybody else starts cracking up. And, and Tyler Ennis told me, that's why I love this guy. He's not afraid to laugh at himself. And he's not afraid to make a fool of himself. So um, the thing, the interesting thing with Giannis is he's slowly showing more of himself to us, uh, the people outside. I think he's been really, really closed up for a really long time. But when you see these glimmers of personality, these flux of humor, it just endears you more to him. Uh, I remember him showing us maybe a little too much of himself when he showed the video <laughs> of his girlfriend giving him a very particular gift for <laughs> Valentine's Day. It was sort of oh, like yeah. an easy button, but it wasn't for, you know, office supplies and I'll just leave it there. Um, but I, I liked that because I'm me, you know, I don't, I don't want people to feel like they have to be the perfect role model every single time they can be honest and, and adult and, and human. Uh, but I've, I've been a big fan of his and it's been really fun to see the Bucks get all the way to the finals and to see him perform as he has, you know, as you're watching and Mirren Fader is with us from the ringer. She has a new book, Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP. It's available August 10th, wherever you get your books, you can pre-order it now. Um, when you're watching these finals, Um, Does it give you a different perspective to watch at the highest level, a sport that you cover and you've done a lot of work on when it's someone that you've just spent all this time really diving deep into? Yes. When I look at him, I'm amazed because this is a person who had one pair of socks growing up and his mom, despite working 10 plus hours a day, would make sure to wash it every day to make sure he had his socks. This is a man who refused to wear more than two shoes his rookie year because he didn't feel worthy of having more Mm. because he was so accustomed to going without. You know, this is a person who um, has really grown up in front of our eyes. We've watched him from humble rookie, endearing rookie, to somebody that's transformed their body from 
you know, learning about anecdotes where he gets to Milwaukee and he doesn't know how to weightlift. The strength coach of the Bucks told me we had to teach him how to bench press. And I look at that guy and I look at him in the finals looking like a, a Greek god and I see how passionate he is in the huddle hyping up his teammates. I'm just like, wow, uh, we don't appreciate what we're witnessing. We are watching 100%. greatness in real time and it's fascinating and it shows that people are allowed to grow and people are allowed to develop and maybe we shouldn't rush prospects when they are not quite exactly there at their rookie year. Totally agree. Hey, we're out of time. So 10 seconds or less. Giannis wins it all. He's got finals MVP. You know him the best. What does he celebrate with? Oh my God. Uh, well, he did love milkshakes his rookie year. He couldn't get over the concept <laughs> of a milkshake. I imagine the kid in him still wants a milkshake. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I love it. Hey, thanks so much for the time here and good luck with the book. I've seen so much great response to it. You sent it to me. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to, and I can't wait. So thanks for the time. Oh, wonderful. Thank you again, Sarah. It's awesome to talk. If you don't know Mirren Fader, get on it. Go read her stuff. Go find her old stuff. She's fantastic. Thanks for the time to her. I know she's been running around promoting that book all day. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Solo Spain tonight on a Friday. We're presented by Progressive. And joining me now, Carolyn Peck to talk a little bit about Team USA, Hoops, and Liz Cambage news. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Friday. You're listening to Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, Solo Spain tonight. We're presented by Progressive. You can follow me at Sarah Spain on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to Spain and Fitz on the ESPN app, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Never miss a segment. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance with insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Joining me now on the Goodyear Hotline, Carolyn Peck, who has got all sorts of bona fides to bring to this conversation about USA basketball, including at one point being the assistant coach, also a head coach at Purdue and University of Florida, the first head coach GM in the history of the WNBA back for the Orlando Miracle. And there's so much great conversation around the WNBA this year and now USA basketball. I just have to ask your reaction the other night to the incredible all-star game where we actually saw Team WNBA take out Team USA. I thought it was a great um, demonstration of the great talent in women's basketball. It was competitive. It was one of the the best all-star games I've seen because they were competing a little bit too. And, you know, I thought it was fun. I, I love the fact that Vegas, a guy later admitted, like he kind of lazily looked and thought, all right, all-star game, going to be a huge over there. There's never any defense. Everyone's having fun. And then they had to drop it like 50 points. And after that, all these people are winning money, looking at it, saying, no, they're going to be playing hard. Did that give you any insight into weaknesses, though, of this USA basketball team? Because the women have been so dominant for so long. It's kind of hard to pick pick at them at some point, but they did lose this game. Well, you look at two things. One, they had had one day of practice. So implementing strategy and chemistry and all that kind of stuff is not going to all come together. And then especially in an all-star game, when you're playing against the WNBA all-stars, you know, they have a basic structure that Lisa and Tina implemented, but you know, it wasn't something that the coaching staff could look at and say, okay, we're going to take away this player or that player because there's loaded talent at all five spots, whoever was on the floor. 
So I think that, uh, you know, I, there's no need to hit the panic button. I think it's a matter of they're trying out some different things. They're still building that chemistry. And come Olympic time, the USA women will be ready. ESPN's Carolyn Peck, who calls men's and women's college hoops, NBA, WNBA for the network here with me on Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN radio. Um, you look ahead to the Olympics, you know, this is the pinnacle for so many athletes, uh, even at the basketball level, particularly in the WNBA is a, is a slightly younger league where maybe they would still prioritize a gold medal over a WNBA title. And it's a little bit different, uh, a little bit potentially tainted by the fact that there won't be friends and family there by fears about the bubble and and COVID. Have you spoken to any of the players or coaches about how they're going to try to keep people focused and optimistic and feeling safe and ready to play and thinking about the basketball and not all the other stuff? Well, really, the only uh, players that I've been able to talk to have been Chelsea Gray and Asia Wilson. And... These two, they have talked about how focused they are. You know, they are they're a little disappointed that their parents aren't going to be there with them, but they understand the sacrifice that needs to be made in order to have the Olympics. And so, yeah, they their focus is going to get gold, and so that's where they are. Instead of focusing on who's not there, focusing on who's who is there that really allow less distractions that can be focused on their team mm-hmm. so that they can really try to go out and represent represent Team USA. And Carolyn, I do think a lot of athletes are taking that really great perspective of it's happening, right? We get to go. We get to compete. There was such a fear around the cancellation and postponement last year that there is a lot of gratitude for the fact that they are getting the opportunity to go out there and compete for their country. Carolyn Peck is with me here on Spain and Fitch Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. A lot of news today about Liz Cambage. Um, You know, she has been very open about her mental health struggles. She wrote a story for the Players Tribune a couple years ago acknowledging that she had been on suicide watch in 2016. She has some DNPs for panic attacks. Um, has struggled with substance abuse. So when this comes out today, there is, of course, absolutely empathy and respect for her decision to protect herself. But, of course, there's more to the story than that. There's the conversation around her partying in Vegas and violating protocols. There's the story of an altercation in practice or in that friendly with Nigeria, the closed-door matchup. Um, How do you reconcile all the different parts of that story in, in terms of her then announcing she would remove herself from the situation, perhaps before they had an opportunity to do just that without her, you know, without her doing it? Well, I think that first and foremost, the mental health aspect is key. And a lot of the other behaviors, and I have nothing to, um, uh, you know, I have no facts to base on the other stuff that you mentioned. All I know is that first and foremost, the mental health aspect and to be able to address and acknowledge that, she has some mental health issues and to remove herself from the team to take care of herself first, I think is the most important thing. Um, You know, a lot of the other behaviors can be a result of the mental health issues that you're trying to combat or trying to deal with. And I think by removing herself from the Olympic team and really taking the focus of what she needs to focus on So many times athletes focus on the physical aspect and fine-tuning their craft, 
and ignore the mental health aspect. Mm -hmm. And that has just as much of an impact on their performance of, as of how strong they are, how long they can run, what kind of shape they're in. And so, and the mental health aspect a lot of times gets ignored. And so for an athlete to recognize and whatever circumstances brought that to her attention to acknowledge it and, you know, seek the resources to take care of that, I, I have to commend her for. If you were one of her teammates, um, maybe not with the Opals, there might be a little bit more there to, to have to figure out in terms of, you know, whether they're sad about her letting the team down or they're supportive of her making the decision. But if you were if you were an Aces teammate, what do you, what would you want her to know right now or what would you say to her? That uh, if I were her teammate, I would let her know I support her. I'm here for her, whatever she needs uh, that I could possibly provide. I'd be there for her uh, and just support her as she goes through this next trial. That's got to be it. I mean, that's got to be what they all say to her. And we don't know yet how long it's going to take Cambage to uh, be back to feeling up to playing. Uh, thank you so much to Carolyn Peck. So much great insight. And I honestly love uh, how much time we're given to some of these stories and, and how much is being talked about in the WNBA this season, including the tough stuff, because in order for us to respect these athletes at the same level, we need to talk about um, every aspect of the game, not just the good stuff. Uh, speaking of not the good stuff, baseball right now, going through it. Jeff Passan going to join me next and try to make me feel a little better about the Cubs, maybe? Huh? Huh? What's next? Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Friday here on Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. This weekend's What to Watch For is brought to you by Sam Adams. Everybody's got a cousin from Boston who forgets their wallet at dinner, but never forgets a sixer of refreshing Sam Adams. Cheers to that. The Boston Beer Company, Boston Mass, savor the flavor responsibly. Shout out, as always, to my buddy who is the cousin from Boston and all those ads getting a lot of run. Joining me now to talk about what there is to watch for, Jeff Passan. Jeff, there is a lot to watch for, including has the spread bed contained to Aaron Judge and the Yankees, or is it possible that MLB All-Star was a super spreader? Do we have an answer on that, or do we have to wait a little longer to see that incubation period? I think we have to wait a little longer at this point. And look, there are reports out there that some Colorado Rockies players, at least one that I've been able to confirm, have tested positive as well. But uh, because they're the Rockies and they're terrible, they weren't around All-Star Weekend. <laughs> so uh, those may be two completely separate things. I think we just see, you know, Sarah, look at the number of, uh, cases in the country rising, and MLB is quite often a reflection of society, and sports really, a reflection of society writ large, and the idea that there are going to be more cases when you see increased cases in the general populace is uh, a reality. I think the thing that we can fall back on and be hopeful about uh, is that a number of the cases inside of baseball are with vaccinated players, and uh, generally speaking, uh, if you uh, contract COVID-19 after you've been vaccinated, you're going to be okay. And that is a great sign and something that we can take solace in. The fact that uh, even though you are able to catch the virus with the vaccine, it prevents something worse from happening. And in reality, in the end, all we want to do is uh, prevent people from getting severely sick and dying and uh, right. thankfully and that is uh, what the vaccine's yep. done 
Yeah, and very rare to spread it if you're vaccinated because the levels of virus are so low. So it does prevent it from going wildfire around your team and other people in your life. Uh, you know, Jeff, you're talking to lots of players and you were just at the All-Star game where you're around a ton of different teams and, and representatives. How are the conversations in a clubhouse like that? Because if you're all vaccinated for the most part, the likelihood of spread is very low, which means you're getting it from people who are unvaccinated. Those could be your teammates, could be your family or friends. But if they are your teammates and there's any thought about that, will this potentially cause some some more conversation in locker rooms around baseball about forcing the hand of those who have chosen not to get vaccinated yet? Nope. Mm. <laughs> I was mean, worried he might I, say that. Well, when I say that baseball is is reflective of the country around it, you know, it's the same issue that people who are pro-vaccine with uh, that people who are pro-vaccine are having with those who are against getting the vaccine. And the logic is clearly there as to why it is the right thing to do so. The facts are on the side of getting vaccinated. Mm All of the leaders and the people who, uh, for the the people who are against the vaccine, who are uh, those they look up to, are actually vaccinated. Right. So th- there's no good reason behind it aside from misinformation, and uh, that misinformation is pervasive inside of some clubhouses. And if you look at the seven teams, Sarah, that haven't reached the 85 percent vaccination threshold and tier one employees in order to loosen protocols, generally speaking, those teams have a veteran player, typically a popular veteran player, who is not vaccinated, and thus the pressure that's in place for the younger players and for the less educated players looking up to them, and in, in, uh, as is the case with so many of those other teams, they have those veteran leaders who have gotten it done. That's just not the case in in these teams that haven't and it's reflected in the uh in the number of people who are getting vaccinated inside of a clubhouse one of those of course being the chicago cubs anthony rizzo jason hayward if they're not vaccinated it gives an okay for younger players who who don't want to as well jeff passon is with me here on spain and fit solo spain on espn radio since i brought up the cubs you said on sports center this morning craig kimbrell has a high value Chris Bryant has a high value, but maybe Bryant's value isn't as much as the Cubs would hope. Is this just too small of a sample size now that he's healthy again, playing as well as he has to counteract some of the question marks around him in, in recent years when he wasn't healthy? No, I, you know, I don't think this is a sample size thing, and I don't think that this is a question mark thing. I think this is more a Chris Bryant is a rental player thing. Mm. And, and typically speaking, rental bats don't have great markets now. You look at the National League East, Sarah. The New York Mets want Chris Bryant. The Washington Nationals want Chris Bryant. Philadelphia Phillies could probably use Chris Bryant, especially if you look at him potentially as a center fielder where he's played 10 games this season for the Cubs. I mean, if you can get an interdivision bidding war going on, it is Jed Hoyer's finest dream. You know, there's going to be multiple teams in on Craig Kimbrell already, but the idea that you can have a position player up at uh, up at auction in Chris Bryant, and you can really extract the most value out of one of those teams that's trying to compete. And look, maybe Philadelphia and and Washington are just posturing to drive the New York Mets price up, 
But can the Mets really afford to let Chris Bryant go to one of their division rivals when they so clearly need a bat like his in the middle of a lineup? Boy, uh, that is a hard, hard thing to do, and I don't envy Sandy Alderson and Zach Scott because, uh, you know, I think Jed Hoyer is going to push a stiff bargain and, and with good reason. Jeff, this might be a dumb question, but I'm just looking for a tiny piece of hope. Is there any chance that the Cubs would say trade away a couple of these guys, get some good stuff back, and then they would come back and, like, re-sign them? Yeah. I mean, isn't that what uh, happened with the role as Chapman? And, yeah. I just don't know if the Cubs are uh, so out on spending that they won't be able to give the guys what they want to get them back. Um. I don't think they're going to go and sign those guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> but you're I, saying I, it could happen. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it could happen in the same way that, that Mary Swanson would, uh, you know, go, get together with Lloyd Christmas. Like, <laughs> you know, saying like, I'm chance. saying there's a chance, but <laughs> yeah, probably not much. All right, let's move on to another team that's going to depress me less. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight. Jeff Passon here with me on ESPN Radio. We are, we're talking about the Yankees. This is a terrible time for them to be out some of their best players. 8-10 to 10 against the Red Sox. They're six games up on the Yankees. Oof. Is this stretch right here going to decide whether the Yankees still consider themselves buyers? Well, the idea that the Yankees are going to be missing their best player, it looks like almost certainly through the trade deadline or right up to it. Um, in, in the idea that they're going to be missing him as they face an eight out of their next 10 games, uh, arguably the best team in the American League and the team that entered the break eight games ahead of them in the standings. Not great timing, Sarah. Yeah. Not great timing to lose Aaron Judge. It's not great timing to lose you or show. It's not great timing to lose Jonathan Weisiger. It's not great timing to lose Nestor Cortez. I mean, these have been four of the most integral players for the Yankees this season. Two pitchers, two hitters, and they're going to be gone here for a while. And that is uh, – it's devastating. Like, there's no there's no other word for it. It was interesting. At the beginning of the year, I was talking to the general manager, and he was saying uh, being COVID vaccinated is uh, – to the, to the greatest of your ability is going to be a competitive advantage. Mm. And he said that for specifically this reason. Because if somebody did not bring that virus into the clubhouse with the Yankees, they would be a lot better positioned right now to compete with the Red Sox than they actually are. And, you know, if you're the Yankees right now, you just can't afford to lose many games. And they're getting one hit through the fifth inning right now. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, going to be a very interesting stretch here for the Yankees, for a handful of teams that have vacillated between buying and selling as we head towards the trade deadline. Hey, Jeff, thanks for the insight. Great reporting. And again, great, fantastic stuff on Shohei Otani. People who didn't read his article right after the Home Run Derby, uh, check it out. Really, really excellent stuff. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, sir. Appreciate it. Jeff Passon here on Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight. Going to send you out with a couple thoughts on the Olympics that are getting ever closer And also a story about how it rained ham today. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain Spain and Fitz. Sarah, this is the first time we get to do this. I'm a little nervous. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. Are you ready? No judgment. (sighs) Lots of judgment. Lots of judgment. I think I got this. It's Friday. 
How's that? Was that good? Hell no. I hey, like the tone. I like the pitch. It needs a lot more fortitude. More like, it's Friday. Swipe up. Super life. Oh, it felt good. Felt good to hear it the way it's supposed to be heard. It's a Friday, a slightly muted Friday. I had a very long day. And Fitz isn't here. And Fitz's crackly little boy voice always brings me uh, smiles and joy on a Friday. But the show's almost over, and that brings me joy, too. Spain and Fitz, solo Spain. I did a Sports Center feature excerpt uh, that I was an expansion of a parting shot that I did uh, for Outside the Lines about the Olympics. And, you know, we're going to be talking about a whole lot of incredible achievements, and I hope we'll be focusing on a lot of the athletes and what they accomplish over there in Tokyo. But a lot of the run-up has been about concerns about COVID, restrictions on, you know, fans, restrictions on coaches, family members, children going over there with athletes. And we've also spent a fair amount of time talking about some policies that are disproportionately affecting black athletes as we lead into the Olympics. And I think after everything that we went through as a country, In the last year plus, we are starting to be more intentional about understanding what is the root cause of a lot of policies, rules, and decisions, and can we unpack whether or not they were intended to exclude, whether or not they were intended to include, or if sometimes the abilities, the opportunities, the differences in people of color were never considered when these policies originated and need to be considered now. And I did a, a Sports Center feature essay for it. Uh, we're going to play it for you here. We're just days away from the opening ceremonies in Tokyo, and some controversial policies that disproportionately affect black competitors have been stealing focus from celebrating the athletes and the realization of their Olympic dreams. At a young age, these athletes were taught to dream big. But as they reach their highest heights, women and girls are learning that greatness might come at a price. If they're too good or too black, they might catch the eye of policymakers who find a way to write them right out of the sport they love. There's the International Swimming Federation announcing a ban on sole caps, swim caps meant to accommodate natural black hair, ruling that athletes competing at the international level have never required the use of caps of such size and configuration, essentially highlighting the sport's issues with diversity and reinforcing the barriers that make some black swimmers feel unwelcome. The ban of the UK-based brand came just days after Team Great Britain's first black swimmer and sole cap paid endorser, Alice Deering, qualified for the Olympics. The ban resulted in public outcry and criticism from top-level athletes, including Deering. The issue with this story is I don't want little black girls, little black boys to look at elite swimming and think it's not open to them because that is completely the wrong idea. Um, It is open to them. FINA has since announced it will revisit the decision. Per their statement, quote, FINA is committed to ensuring that all aquatics athletes have access to appropriate swimwear for competition where this swimwear does not confer a competitive advantage. FINA is currently reviewing this situation with regards to Soulcap and similar products, understanding the importance of inclusivity and representation. It's not clear whether a reversal of course would occur in time to allow Soulcaps to be used in these Olympic Games. On the track, another policy has grabbed headlines. 
Two female runners from Namibia, Christine Mboma and Beatrice Masulingi, have been banned from competing in the 400 meter in Tokyo because their natural testosterone levels are quote unquote too high. Women, and only women, whose levels of natural T exceed an arbitrary limit decided by World Athletics are banned from running events between 400 meters and a mile and are required to take drugs to lower T levels to compete. In a briefing published in May 2019, the IAAF said the evidence to date indicates that elevated T has the most performance-enhancing benefits in distances between 400 meters to a mile. But the study cited actually showed a greater benefit in events like the hammer throw and pole vault, neither of which are regulated for T levels. And the evidence the IAAF is referencing was based on a single study and didn't follow traditional routes for peer reviews, according to Katrina Karzakis, a bioethicist and senior research fellow at Yale University. It can't be ignored that the rule was implemented following nearly a decade of South African phenom Castor Semenya dominating the 800. In 2019, Semenya said flat out, quote, I know the IAAF's regulations have always targeted me specifically. We celebrated swimmer Michael Phelps whose body produces half the lactic acid of his competitors, whose lung capacity is twice that of the average human, and whose extra-long wingspan, hyper-jointed chest, and double-jointed ankles and elbows all help him be great. But as a society, we insist on putting a cap on the greatness of women. Whether in the pool or on the track, these rules are made by decision-makers who either never considered black women and a diversity of bodies when making policy, or worse, made the policies intending to exclude. So that was the feature story for SportsCenter, and it has to be about three minutes or so. I urge you to do some more reading on it. And again, I think like one of the things that's great about our ability to evolve and change and learn is to be willing to say that's not right and to not use tautological agreements to support things like it's always been that way or people have never needed that before. I find it incredibly frustrating that whether we're talking about cisgender women or transgender women, we are consistently saying if they achieve X, all of a sudden we have to regulate it. And we never do that with men. We do it with performance dancing drugs, sure. But natural bodies of men are marveled at, marveled at the way Giannis is the Greek freak and Michael Phelps is able to achieve what he can because of this disparity in the way his body is made. But when that happens with women, we literally create rules and policy to regulate it. And guess what? It's usually black women because they achieve things that are above our expectations because they are built in ways that defy our expectation, which is around white as being the standard or the norm. And if we don't ask questions about these policies and wonder why they're in place and why they don't evolve as we evolve as human beings, then we allow them to continue and we reinforce the barriers that keep people out of sport and that make these competitions unfair. And it's really frustrating if you actually start to look into it. A lot of people won't. A lot of people will move past it because it's not affecting their favorite athlete. You know, Shikari Richardson is a completely different topic, and we can focus on that and how that rule needs to be changed. But these people that are not able to use the equipment they need or are banned from competing because of natural testosterone levels are not cheating. They are not doing something against the rules. They were born... And a rule was created to prevent them from competing. That's BS, and we need to talk about it. Spain and Fit, solo Spain tonight on a Friday. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle auto, home, or motorcycle insurance. Visit Progressive.com. So no fits tonight, which means, uh, you know, it's just too hard to do sports Tinder. 
Who would I ask questions of? Myself? It would be very awkward. So instead, I'm going to tell you a brief anecdote from today, which, by the way, my day started with me uh, first getting uh, a ham fell on me. And then my flip flop broke and I had to walk down Michigan Avenue with one shoe uh, and go to Walgreens and buy new shoes. So it was a great start and about to close it in about one minute here. And I bet you can guess what I'm going to do. Drink a lot of wine and lay on the couch and think about my day. But here's what happened. If you haven't heard of the Kentucky meat shower, it is an actual real thing that happened in 1876. And it was documented in like real places like the Scientific American and the New York Times. This is not urban legend. There was a woman standing out in her yard and she looked out and saw what appeared to be chunks of red meat. Like raining down from the sky in Kentucky. Now I contend that this should be some sort of thing that we use in sports. Like if the Kentucky basketball team's like hot from the perimeter, we need to say it's a, it's a veritable Kentucky meat shower out there. Anyway, the point is I had my own meat shower today because I was sitting at brunch with a friend visiting and just while I'm sitting at the table, a ham fell on me, a circular ham piece, probably from a lunchable fell out of the sky onto my head And I'm blaming a squirrel or a bird. There was a tree above me, and there were chew marks in the Lunchable ham. I just want to warn you guys this weekend, look out for meat showers. And you can either decide that that's a euphemism. I don't know what you're doing with your personal time. So if you've got a meat shower headed your way, I hope that's a good thing for you. But look out for Lunchable ham and broken flip-flops. And have a fantastic weekend. Freddie Fitzsimmons coming up next. They've got the entire U.S. women's national basketball team on. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio.